All right. You can have your Bibles handy. If you'd like, you can turn to Genesis 1. We'll be beginning there today. Last time we were together, we considered specifically the beginnings of this kingdom conflict between God and Satan. Satan exalted himself and sought authority over God. So the Bible tells us that God cast Satan out of heaven, but sovereignly gave him authority over the darkness of this world. To this end, we find that Satan was given a right to rule, ironically given by God, since the whole contention is who is God, who, is, who has the right to rule. And he's also given a realm over which to rule, which was the darkness of this world. Now, as far as prehistory goes, which is as far as we got last week, just learning of the fall of Satan, as far as prehistory goes, we find that Satan's realm over which he ruled was simply the darkness of this world being simply the fallen angels, those angels that had followed him in his rebellion. But that's all going to change as we step into history proper, tracing the kingdom through each of what we will call the dispensations of this age, the dispensations we covered several weeks ago, uh, what we believe those dispensations are, those various portions of time that begin with God giving an extra layer of accountability and responsibility to man and an extra layer of revelation and then ending with man's failure. In this case, we're going to add this layer of the kingdom of uh, uh, the, the, the kingdom conflict and the satanic conflict and recognize that at the end of each one of these dispensations, the failure of man was also a threat to God's kingdom as uh, mankind is given dominion. And that's where we're going to trace this. And let's begin as we do. So we've got uh, some, some ground to cover today. We'll begin in Genesis 1. I give you a, a list of verses here. What I am summarizing is the creation week as we would call it. The Bible says, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Verse 3, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Verse 9, And God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. Verse 14, And God said, Let there be light in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs, and for seasons, and for days, and for years. Verse 20, And God said, Let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life, and fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. Verse 24, And God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping thing, and beast of the earth after his kind. And it was so. Verse 26, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Six days of creation. And within those six days, God initiated and completed His creative work as we see it here. On the sixth day, along with the living creatures after their kind, the cattle, the creeping things, the beasts of the earth, the Bible tells us that God made Man. There are two important elements of Gen Genesis chapter 1, verses 26's um, presentation of man's creation. 
The first thing we see is that God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, the nature of this creation. Unlike anything else, as far as the biblical record is concerned, God made man in his image after his likeness. As I just said, man is the only part of God's creation, as far at least as the biblical record tells us, that has this character, this nature, after God's image, in God's likeness. The only element of God's creation made in His image. The image of God is not a physical thing. It's not that we look like God. It's not even necessarily a moral thing, although there's a moral aspect to it. When we talk about the image of God, we recognize that God is a person. What is a person? Well, we would typically define a person as something that has all of the essential components of personhood, namely intellect, emotion, and will. Intellect, emotion, and will, and that is what makes a person. With the mind, man knows God. With the heart, man can love God. And with the will, man can choose, exercise himself unto God. This is distinguished from all other elements of God's creation on this earth. Mankind has the elements of personhood and the unique capacity to exercise those elements of personhood Godward. To worship God, to know God, to have a personal relationship with God. And so man is made in God's image. That's his nature. The second element that we see here from this verse is that man had a purpose. That God created man for a purpose, whereby we read, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. God gave mankind dominion. God gave mankind authority over his created order. God delegated to humanity the responsibility of representing him to his created order. Now, in contrast to God's direct rule over the angelic hosts, we talked last week about one of the elements of God's kingdom being that it is a kingdom that is delegated, that God has regularly chosen various elements of his creation and delegated to them rule over different parts of his creation. In contrast to what would seem to be God and then uh, with the demonic horde, Satan's direct rule over the angelic host, God speaks and the angel says, the angel says yes, the angel hears, the angel obeys. On earth, God delegated the responsibility of his creation to mankind. That God would speak to man and then man would administer the created order. So it was that God told Adam to tend the garden. So it was that God told Adam to name the animals. Why were all of these responsibilities given to Adam? Because God had delegated creation to Adam. Creation was Adam's responsibility because creation was Adam's dominion. A delegated authority. So Adam named the animals. So Adam tended the garden. Man administers God's created order. In fact, Psalm 6 tells us, verse, uh, excuse me, Psalm 8, not Psalm 6, Psalm 8, verses 3 through 9. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Here, 
Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air, and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. This reflects the creation element of God, of God giving mankind dominion. So knowing that God gave mankind dominion over the created order, we can then understand, perhaps, why mankind was so important to Satan. To this point, Satan's authority, prehistory, right? What we traced last week, Satan's authority is the darkness of this world. But the darkness extends effectively only as far as the angels that followed him in his rebellion. Nothing else in the created order is fallen. Nothing else in the created order is anything other than innocent. Now, the created order is not holy. It is not perfect. It is not, um, it is not sinlessly confirmed in its sinlessness. It is what we would call innocent. Mankind was free from sin in the sense that he did not know sin, in the sense that he had no understanding. He had no uh, moral understanding of such things. He was in a state of innocence. There had been no test of mankind's will, no test of his volition to exercise himself for or against God. And this is why God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden. It is often asked by those who are, uh, maybe disingenuously, but also those who are seeking. Why, if God is going to punish mankind for sin, if God is going to punish mankind for rebellion, would God then put the object of rebellion in front of mankind? Why would God give the opportunity for man to fall and then punish man when he takes the opportunity that God placed in front of him? If God is really God and if the punishment for rebellion is really separation and destruction eternally, why even give his creation the opportunity? Doesn't this make God some sort of sadistic, mean, evil, terrible God? No, it does not. Because God did not create mankind to be created slaves to him, automatons. God created mankind to serve him. And the difference is love. God can compel obedience and servitude. He could do that all day. He could twist my heart, change my heart, to make it to where I have no will, I have no desires other than His, and just force me to serve Him as effectively a robot. He could do that. But if He did that, there would be no glory to God. There would be no love. What God cannot compel, because it is an exclusive outworking of this concept that we call volition, what God cannot compel is love. I can force my children to obey me. I can force my children to, to any number of actions, but I cannot force my children to love me because love is a choice. God cannot make anyone love him any more than you can make anyone love you. Love, by fundamental definition, is volitional. Where there is no volition, where there is no choice, where there is no free will, there cannot be true love. And God does not want robots of compelled obedience. God wants man to choose him, to love him. And 
as love must be an exercise of the will, God had to place a choice before mankind. And by the way, we do this. I hope you do this with your children. I hope you put them in positions to make the right choice when you feel they're ready, that you've taught them, that you've told them your expectations, and then you put them in positions where you test the expectation to see if they're ready, if they're, if they're at a place where they are exercising their volition toward the Lord, toward you, where you are testing to gauge how your child is doing so that you know how to work on them next. I hope you're doing that. Well, God placed the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in that garden as an opportunity to test mankind's love, to exercise his volition toward God. And so this tree is there. And Satan saw this choice, this moment, this tree, as his opportunity to prove something about himself and his kingdom. If Satan could get the pinnacle, the prize of God's creation, mankind over whom all creation uh, has been, he's over whose, mankind who has been given dominion over all creation, that's where I was trying, that's what I was trying to say there then Satan would gain this authority. If he could get man to exercise his will toward his kingdom rather than God's kingdom, then of course this element of God's creation would follow Satan, but also everything underneath his authority would follow Satan. So Satan tempts man. And Satan tempts man through woman, which was a good strategy as well. Because Satan knew that there was this principle of headship, whereby the woman was created to be the man's helpmeet, whereby the man, therefore, is the head of the woman, where he is the one who leads. If Satan were to go directly to Adam and to compel Adam to rebel, it might very, very well be that Adam would choose not to. But what if Satan could first get to Eve? then would Adam, in some sort of misguided desire toward his wife, or in some sort of confused state, yield headship, and Satan could kind of find the back door into man. Now, as I say that, we'll, we'll talk about this more in just a moment, this is not disparaging the woman in any way. In fact, it was man's rebellion, not woman's rebellion, that caused the race to fall. And we'll, we'll get there in a moment. But this is his strategy. I hope that's making sense. So Satan hit mankind with all of the opportunities of his kingdom, of the darkness of this world. What are the elements of the darkness of this world? We learn about them in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. John writes, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. When we talk about the world... When we talk about not loving the world, when we talk about avoiding the world, we're not talking about av avoiding stuff, right? We're not talking about not driving cars and not using electronics. We're not talking about um, not going to stores and, and, and those sorts of things. We're not talking about rejecting the, the modern technologies of this world. When we say guard yourself against the world, when we say that the world is enmity against God, this is what we're talking about. The philosophy of this world the darkness of this world. This was not the world when Satan approached Adam. 
And Satan approached Adam to say, I am offering, or Eve, excuse me, and Satan approached Eve saying, this is what I am offering to you. This is what I'm offering. This can be the world if you will follow me. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Lust of the flesh, that which fulfills our desires. The lust of the eyes, that which satisfies our eyes. The lust of, or the pride of life, that which elevates our status. The Bible says these things are not of God. If they are not of God, then what are they of? They are of the darkness of this world. These are the things that define Satan's kingdom. The essence of his promises. Say, Pastor, are those really the essence of his promises? Let's take a look at the account with me. We skip ahead to Genesis 3, where the Bible says this. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. How do we know that the serpent is Satan? The Bible tells us in Revelation. We'll get there in a little while. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. This is the claim. This is the promise. God is holding you back. God is keeping something from you. God is, is keeping you from your fullest human potential. You could be like God if you really wanted to be, and the only reason why you aren't like God is because God is holding you back. And so what does the woman do? And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. Satan begins with lies intermingled with truth. This is like the first beer commercial, right? It's a commercial where all you see is everybody having a great time. And everybody's just really enjoying it, and there's laughter and there's fun, and they forget to tell you about the consequences. And they forget to tell you about the hangovers, and they forget to tell you about the, 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 the dangers of alcoholism and, and falling into that, and, and the lives that have been ruined, and the families that have been ruined and destroyed. Satan just left all of that stuff of, of, of his kingdom out, and, and he only gives the good stuff. He only gives the good stuff. He told her all of the benefits and specifically told her that God was lying about the consequences because she knew the consequences. She said, we, I will surely die. We will surely die if we eat of this. And Satan says, you won't die. You won't die. God is simply trying to hold you back. And notice the description of Eve's thought process here. Follow her thought process with me. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food... I'm hungry. Here's a tree. This is the lust of the flesh, right? Pursuing the innate human desires. She says, the tree is good for food. That means it's going to satisfy a desire. If it's satisfying a human desire, then it must be okay, right? If it's a desire that's baked into me, then why shouldn't I have it? The lust of the flesh. What comes next? And, uh, and that it was pleasant to the eyes. The lust of the eyes. It looked good. It'll feel good. It looks good. And then finally, and a tree to be desired to make one wise. The pride of life. 
I will know things I didn't know before. I will be elevated to a status I wasn't elevated to before. This is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Satan is offering her his kingdom. The principles of his kingdom. All that is in the world. The darkness of the world can be yours. And boy, it doesn't look like darkness, does it? It's going to satisfy an innate human desire for food. It's going to satisfy the eye test. It looks real good. And it's going to make me wise. I can be like God. So she is sold by the darkness of this world. She eats. Mankind does not fall to sin when she eats. Woman is not the one who has dominion. Man has dominion. Woman is not the head of the, uh, uh, of the, of the, the um, marriage. The man is the head. It is his responsibility. He is the one that leads his wife. And so man did not fall, but then she gave to her husband and he ate. Again, we don't know the fullest motivation here. Uh, Paul in Timothy, tells us that this is the reason, this is the inherent reason why, when he says that women should not be teachers in the church, because Eve was deceived by the serpent, that women are more emotive, they are, they, they are, are more um, uh, led by emotions. Again, this is not a negative, this is a characteristic. And in doing so, they are more easily deceived. Thus, God says in the church, men lead the church. In the home, man leads the home. He has been given headship. This is a characteristic that God has given to us. This does not make women inferior. This does not mean that women are any less capable, but it simply means that women have been built with different propensities. And those propensities work in their favor in a thousand ways. Indeed, motherhood that maternal instinct, that capacity to em empathize is something that our children could not do without and our society could not do without. I believe it was C.S. Lewis that said every job in society serves one purpose and that is to allow women to stay at home and raise their families. And really, all of society functions to allow for the family to grow. That allows for the woman to do what God has called her to do. It's an honorable position. It's not inferior, but it is distinct. And here, Adam yielded his headship. He allowed Eve to have the right to make a decision that was his to make. And he yielded to it. And he rebelled against God knowingly. And mankind fell into sin. So the moment this happened, mankind spiritually died. He spiritually was separated from God. Iniquity was found in our race. And the spiritual death is now born into every man and every woman that is the child of a father as it passes down from generation to generation, inherited all the way back to Adam. So from this point on then, when we are born, we are born into Satan's kingdom. We are born into a world, Adam, it was not just Adam and Eve that fell. All that was under his dominion fell. That is why there's a curse upon this earth, to remind us that we are in a fallen world. To remind us that this world system, this system that mankind has now put in place, is a system that is, at its fundamental level, devoted to the kingdom of Satan and Satan's principles. God did not just yield mankind to the kingdom of Satan However, 
God so loved the world that he desired to reconcile man to himself. Mankind exercised his will against God. Now God is going to exercise his will to redeem mankind. And we'll get there when we get to Jesus Christ. He's coming. It's coming. But there's a huge problem with this plan. Sin is the huge problem with this plan. God is just. He is a just God. Sin must be paid for. God can't just say, okay, I'm just going to pretend like that didn't happen because that would make God not just. And if God is not just, then God is not God. God is just. God must be just. So even if man wanted to step out from under the authority of Satan and back under the authority of God, he would still be guilty of the sins he's already committed. He would still be guilty. But God made a promise to Adam and Eve there in the garden after their fall. And God said this to Eve specifically. I will put enmity between thee, or to the serpent, excuse me. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It, the seed of the woman, shall bruise thy head, and thou, the serpent, shall bruise his heel. God promises there would come a day when the seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent. In promising this, God was promising a day when the power and authority of Satan, when the kingdom of Satan would be crushed under the power of one that would come from the very woman that had been deceived by Satan. And this is important not only for the sake of mankind, this is important for the sake of God's kingdom. For until Satan is destroyed, God's kingdom cannot reign in absolute authority, in absolute authority. Uh, in, in, in absolute uh, power. God's purpose in creation remains unfulfilled. So we begin to get a broad picture of what's going on here. God created an innocent creation which was flawless but untested. In this creation, God's desire was to rule absolutely and gloriously over a kingdom. But for God to achieve this, His creation needed not simply to be His slaves, but to be His servants, not simply to obey Him, but to love Him. God needed this. Because is God really ruling over His creation if His creation is not subject to him by will. Right? Can God say that he is ruling in absolution, in absolute authority, if, he, if the will of the people over which he's ruling don't want to be under him? That's not an absolute kingdom. An absolute, in an absolute kingdom, the will of the subjects exercises themselves toward the will of the king. And so there must be this opportunity to exercise one's will. He gave the elements of his creation free will. Satan exercised this will against God. Mankind fell as well. So Satan sets up this counterfeit kingdom, this alternate kingdom, to prove that he can cause God to fail and to be a better king than God. Mankind falls for Satan's deceits and promises exits God's kingdom, enters Satan's kingdom under Satan's authority, following Satan's rule. All of the biblical record is tracing those men and women who have chosen to be loyal to God's kingdom and those men and women who have, been cho who have chosen to be loyal to Satan's kingdom and how God is going to use both 
these men and women, both the loyal and the, the, the disloyal, to exalt his own kingdom and to destroy Satan's kingdom. But we'll also see how at every juncture, every dispensational mark as we call them, Satan is going to attempt to undermine God's kingdom and cause God to fail so that God can no longer be God. But the wonderful thing about the Bible and the purpose of the Bible, by the way, is that it tells us the end, is that we can read the end. At the end, what do we read about? At the end of the Bible, we read about victory, an unopposed divine kingdom made up of all of those in God's creation who have exercised their will toward him from every generation. So that when all is said and done, everyone who has opposed God is in a lake of fire, eternal separation from God for eternity, and everyone who has exercised their will toward God is in his kingdom, a kingdom that is perfect, not only in that God has made it perfect, but that everything in his creation has exercised their will and love toward the creator. A perfect kingdom of absolute dominance, of absolute dominion, and therefore, absolute glory to God. Absolute glory to God. That's where we're going with this. And the rest of our time together, we're going to trace this through each dispensation. So let's begin. We talked about the, the state of innocence, Satan's fall, man's fall. Let's talk about conscience. Remember, in each dispensation, we're seeing God give mankind more revelation of himself, added responsibility that comes with that revelation, and then at the end of each dispensation, we're going to see mankind fail and God judge. All the while, the success and failure of mankind will be determined by whether he chooses God's authority, God's kingdom, or Satan's authority and Satan's kingdom. And this is going to bring us to many points of crises where God is going to divinely intervene to undo what mankind is determined to do through uh, in, in pursuing Satan's kingdom. We have here conscience. This dispensation begins with the tragic account of Cain and his brother Abel. Cain was the elder brother, Abel the younger brother. There was a day when they brought their offerings before the Lord. The Lord accepted Abel's offering, but not Cain's offering. The text is clear that God rejected Cain's offering, not because God did not like Cain, but because Cain's offering was wrong in some way. There's debate as to exactly why that is, whether it was the content of his offering or the, the heart with which he gave it, but, or, or, or quite possibly both. Uh, either way, it's always the heart with which he gave it. Whether the content was wrong or right is, is up for debate, and that's fine. But the idea, one way or another, is this. Cain did not give God what he asked for in worship. We're going to talk about this a little bit tonight in our Luke series as well. God does not accept worship on our terms. God expects worship to be on his terms. The very essence of worship is showing worth to someone. I cannot show worth to someone by giving him something he does not want. Worship must happen on God's terms. Cain did not want to do well. God said to Cain, you didn't do well, so I rejected you. But if you do well, I will receive you. However, Cain had no interest in doing well. This made Cain angry. Cain's heart is invested in Satan's kingdom. He's invested in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. This is what he wants. And he's trying to have his cake and eat it too. He's trying to give lip service to God while at the same time staying in Satan's kingdom. 
To this end, Abel would be chosen to be the seed through whom God would continue to work because God is going to continue to work through those who are devoted to his kingdom. And we'll see that there's a, a line all the way from Adam to the end of the world, a line of those who have maintained a devotion to the kingdom of God. So Satan's next attempt to thwart God's kingdom, he attempted by the fall of man, God uh, thus showed man mercy and began the process of, of reconciliation and redemption. And then Cain says, okay, well, if, or Satan says, if, if Abel is the seed, then if I can lay it upon the heart of Cain to destroy his brother, then I'll destroy the seed. Therefore, Messiah can't come. Redemption can't happen. So Cain kills Abel. The first attempt in this dispensation for Satan's kingdom to thwart God's kingdom. Cain is cursed for this and God provides a new seed. Genesis 4.25 calls him a man named Seth. So now we see two administrations form. We see uh, the, the, the family of Cain, a family that would be devoted to the kingdom of Satan, and we see the family of Seth, a family that would be devoted to the kingdom of God. We, uh, Adam and Eve have many other sons and daughters as well who uh, are not a part of the narrative. Genesis 6 then introduces us to two groups, one called the sons of God and one called the daughters of men. There's great controversy surrounding what happened here. If you're familiar with this controversy surrounding uh, angels and the Nephilim and all of those sorts of things, um, you know where I stand. We had a, a lengthy discussion a week ago Tuesday night on this topic. Uh, you know where I stand and in fact... Uh, the, the chart that I have on, on the screen will tell you where I stand as well. I don't want to distract us with that today for those who are not uh, overly familiar with this topic. But um, either way, what we find is that there was a corruption within mankind that is threatening to take away the fundamental uh, element of loyalty to the kingdom of God. In other words, if mankind is able to continue upon the path that they are treading, there will at some point in the future be none left loyal to the kingdom of God. But there was a man of the line of Seth named Noah who was yet righteous in his generation. He was a just man who feared the Lord. God thus chose to reset the human race through Noah and through his posterity. He called upon Noah to build an ark he said that he would bring a flood upon the earth that would destroy all flesh except those that were on the ark. This global flood is a historic reality. There's plenty of, uh, of, of science to back up the fact that, that it happened. But it also carries with it the theme of redemption and salvation from swift and utter destruction. A theme which is fulfilled and magnified in salvation from eternal destruction through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's foreshadowing. It's a type. The flood effectively reset the program, pushing back the encroachment of Satan's kingdom upon the kingdom of God. And this is the trend that we'll see in every age, that mankind is, is determined to follow the kingdom of Satan. And he continues to follow the kingdom of Satan failing to respond to the mercy of God and it will bring about a dramatic intervention by God saving mankind from himself and preserving God's kingdom. Say, Pastor, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're saying that Satan's kingdom keeps encroaching upon God's to the point where God is on the ropes and then God has to perform some dramatic intervention to reset things? Isn't that a weak God? Doesn't that mean God is weak? Doesn't that mean that Satan is actually winning? God having to step in and do something dramatic? 
No, it isn't. And let me tell you why. Because the day that all of these things happened, the day that Adam and Eve fell to sin, the day that, that, that God saw that, that mankind would be fully corrupted in the days of Noah if things continued as they were, each of those days, God could have very easily just wiped everything out and claimed dominion, right? He could have at any point. At any point still, he could just wipe everything out and claim dominion. Why hasn't he? Why hasn't he? Why is he allowing Satan to have his day? Why is he allowing mankind to continue to follow and, and, and to corrupt himself in this manner? Even as doing so allows him, if we can say it this way, to be walked on, to be tread upon. Something which, by the way, the example of Jesus Christ and the example to us is that we, we need to do in this life sometimes. The, re the reason why God is constantly restraining himself from this dominance is so that mankind might be saved. He's doing it for you. He's doing it for me. He is holding himself back to give time for men to make the right choice. That's why he's doing it. Because if God had destroyed all mankind in Noah's day, then even the just men in Noah's day could not go to heaven because Jesus Christ had not come to finish the work. And he has to finish the work or no one can be saved. So God has to forbear. He has to be patient. He has to allow the kingdom of Satan to tread upon him and his creation until such time as he is ready to dominate until such time as all who can be saved, all who would be saved, will be saved. All who will exercise their will toward God do exercise their will toward God so that God can be entirely merciful and entirely just. This is the plan. These are the marks. Every time you see something horrible happen in the world, such as what happened this past week at the school in Florida, it's a tragedy. It's a terrible thing. When we see earthquakes, such as the one that happened in Mexico this last week, in Norway as well, huge one in Norway. Terrible things. Loss of life. But on it are also the fingerprints of the long-suffering of God, waiting, holding himself back from destroying Satan's kingdom until all who will exercise themselves toward him can receive the mercy that he's offering. Praise God for that. God is weakening himself, if I can put it that way. It's in quotes for those of you listening online. God is weakening himself. He is restraining himself for us, for our benefit. And this is what Jesus did, right? When he came to this earth, veiled glory, veiled majesty, who being equal with God, uh, who being in the likeness of God, uh, now, now, now I'm blanking on Philippians 2. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be made equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, humbled himself, made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, being found in fashion as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. This is what Jesus did 
in that he veiled his power and his deity, which he had. They look at the cross and they say, why doesn't he just pull himself down from the cross? And we know why he didn't pull himself down from the cross. It's not because he couldn't. For indeed, if he had said something, a host of thousands upon thousands, ten thousands of ten thousands of angels would have come to take him down and to exercise his dominion. But he didn't because then we couldn't be saved. We couldn't be saved. And he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's what this is about. So the legacy of God's plan is mercy. Satan's day is coming. He is doomed already. But God is holding back for our sakes. Government. The flood comes. After the flood, God institutes human government. The divine representatives of His moral law to enforce right and wrong in this world. Within this same time, we trace the three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. God called them to spread out across the earth and to repopulate the earth. From this first generation, however, there was a child that had been drawn already back to the kingdom of Satan, to the allure of Satan's kingdom. He was the grandchild of Noah, the son of Ham, and his name was Canaan. Noah cursed Canaan for his evil, and it is through Canaan that Satan's kingdom will continue to have its foothold. At the same time, Noah blesses his son Shem and his posterity, indicating that it would be Shem through whom the seed would come. Shem through whom the continuing line of those loyal to the kingdom of God would continue. And at this same time, as, as we see these things going on, these two kingdoms, again, are moving simultaneously. If you haven't noticed yet, the white there is kind of God's kingdom, and the red line below is effectively Satan's kingdom on that chart. Whereas God told these men to spread across the earth, to multiply, to replenish the earth, human government becoming a check, a moral check on mankind to keep him from doing that which is right in his own eyes as happened in the days of Noah, the men very quickly corrupted themselves again. We read of a mighty hunter named Nimrod. He formed a kingdom, organized mankind to work together to challenge God's authority by making themselves a name and building a tower that reached unto heaven. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. This tower was to symbolize their strength through unity and their intent to cast off the authority of God, to unite under a one-world system, saying that if we unite, there is nothing that we cannot do, effectively claiming we can become as God. So God's kingdom is threatened again by this unity. And again, God has to hit a divine reset button. But He doesn't destroy mankind this time. He still hits a divine reset button, though. The Bible tells us rather he confuses the languages, establishing multiple cultures that would develop along divergent paths, such divergent paths that there will, will be a, a lack of capacity culturally, economically, technologically to unite against God in the way that mankind is prone to do as he follows Satan's kingdom. So through these separation of minds and powers, mankind would be dramatically hindered. We're too busy fighting each other to all unite in a fight against God, right? That's the idea here. Uh, once again, remember, the point is not that God is weak. The point is that God is merciful, long-suffering, forbearing. We must hasten on. We, um, uh, that's, that's government. I apologize. I didn't pop that up there. We see Shem, Ham, Japheth, Canaan, Nimrod being those representatives of... Um, of 
Satan's kingdom here. We then move to the time of promise, as we call it, or the patriarchal dispensation. Uh, we see God here working through a particular man in his family who were loyal to the kingdom of God, a man named Abraham. He gave Abraham a national promise. I will make of thee a great nation, a personal promise. I will bless thee and make thy name great. I will bless thee. Uh, they that bless thee will, will be blessed and they that curse thee will be cursed. Then he gave him a universal promise. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That's the promise of the seed as we trace the kingdom of God. Within this dispensation, we see several attempts to cause the family to fall, the family to fail. Abraham moves out of the promised land into Egypt where Pharaoh threatens God's plan to give Abraham a seed by taking Sarai to be his wife. God intervenes, plagues Pharaoh, protects the legacy. Sarai, discouraged by the fact that she cannot bear a child, she's barren, encourages her husband to have a child with the, her handmaid, Hagar. Abraham yields the position of faith as uh, it relates to this child. And he has a child named Ishmael. Then Abraham gets back on the path uh, uh, as Sarah ends up having a child named Isaac. Isaac is the child of promise. Isaac marries Rebekah. During a famine, he goes into the land of the Philistines. King Abimelech takes Rebekah into his harem, again threatening the promised seed, threatening this kingdom program. And God intervenes. Uh, and gives Abimelech a vision not to touch Rebekah. Abimelech gives Rebekah back to Isaac. Rebekah has twins named Esau and Jacob. Esau is the elder. The, the, the right to the lineage of the land is his by right, by birthright. The patriarchal blessing is his by birthright, but the Bible says he despised his birthright. He loved the things of this world more than he loved the things of God. He loved the promises of Satan's kingdom more than the promises of God's kingdom. And so he chooses the promises of Satan's kingdom, and instead Jacob ends up receiving the birthright. He flees up into Haran, where he stays for 20 years, but God must have him come back down to the promised land to continue. So God brings him back down to the promised land. He has 12 sons. Jacob, called by God Israel now. His name is changed to Israel. In jealousy, his sons conspired to destroy the second youngest, a man named Joseph. They sell him into Egypt where he's blessed by God and elevated from a slave to second in command in the nation. During a famine, Joseph reunites with his family and graciously brings them to Egypt, serving, uh, saving the family from starvation and from utter destruction, saving the posterity of the legacy that God has chosen um, to bring forth the seed that is Messiah. But Joseph dies and a new king arises without a love or an appreciation for Joseph. He enslaves the children of Israel. They continue to grow. So Pharaoh orders every male that is born to be destroyed. And here we're, we're coming up to another conflict. Hanging over the head of the descendants of, of, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is certain death through attrition and slavery in Egypt. And there's no way that they can get out of it. They are slaves under a higher, more powerful nation. Satan and his kingdom, the victory is at hand. But God raises up a man named Moses. And God supernaturally intervenes to bring that nation out of captivity through the Exodus. Are you seeing the parallelism? In each generation, when we say the Bible is a unified book, this is why we say it. The unity of the Word of God is incredible. Do you see why we see God as having divided the history of the world into various ages, into epochs? 
It isn't just the words of the Bible itself which tells us these things, but as we trace these themes, these unified and focused themes through through thousands of years of history and through all of the different authors, we see this unity. The Exodus brings us into the dispensation of the law. Now bear with me, I'm going to try to cover about 2,000 years of history in one slide. The law. Israel is given the law of God. They're commissioned by God to represent Him to the world and to usher in God's kingdom program through Messiah. As they obey God, God will divinely and supernaturally bless them. As they disobey God, God will divinely and supernaturally curse them. If they persist in their disobedience, God will send them into captivity. The nation was not chosen by God to be saved. The election of the nation was not unto salvation. The election of the nation was unto this purpose, that they would reflect God to the world and that God would bless them or curse them in accordance with how they did that. They were also elect to be the nation through whom Messiah would come. And we trace that election through David, then through Solomon, and we continue to trace that election um, all the way to Jesus himself. The conflict between Satan's kingdom and between the kingdom of, of God would continue for these hundreds of years. The nation is threatened by sin and by war and by revolt and by division and by idolatry and by genocide and by obscurity until we enter the New Testament proper, which is still Old Testament economy until Jesus dies. God has not spoken to his people for 450 years between Malachi and Matthew. John the Baptist comes into the scene. He's heralding Messiah. Messiah comes, named Jesus of Nazareth. We read of Satan tempting Jesus in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry, offering him the kingdom, as we studied a little bit last week, by means of Satan rather than God's will. Satan says, I'll give you my kingdom if you'll bow. And if he had bowed to get the kingdom, Satan would have won. Literally, God would have just bowed himself to the kingdom of Satan, as man did in the Garden of Eden so many years ago. Jesus, of course, does not do that. He overcomes those temptations as the first Adam did not. Satan flees from him. Not but a small remnant of the Jews believe on their Messiah, and with the majority rejecting him, so much so that they condemn Jesus to death, they execute him on a cross. This event is that promise way back in Genesis 3.15, that at that moment, the serpent bruised the heel of the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. But Messiah would eventually crush the head of the serpent for three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. He arose, he crushed the head of the serpent, he gave Satan a fatal blow. Satan's greatest power in his kingdom had been man's love for sin, which would lead him finally to separation from God. But now Jesus has conquered sin. Now Jesus has made the way of salvation. Sin is undone. Death is undone. The power of Satan's kingdom is undone. Salvation from the penalty of sin. Salvation from the power of sin. And eventually, someday, salvation even from the presence of sin. It's been done. Satan is a defeated foe. And this ushers into our dispensation. Grace. The church. At this point, God has been working through one nation, 
the physical seed of Abraham, those who came from Abraham's bloodline, the nation of Israel, to show himself to the world. That, see, that, that bloodline rejected him and killed him, chose Satan's kingdom over God's kingdom. And so God now divinely resets the program and begins to work through a new group, the spiritual seed of Abraham, those who follow Abraham's spiritual legacy rather than his physical legacy. The call into salvation is now open to all. All who uh, uh, will believe can receive salvation. And this is the church. Now take note, this is very different. The church is very different in character from any other dispensation. Because the church is already victorious over Satan's kingdom. Stay with me here. The church is not struggling for victory over Satan's kingdom. As, other loyal, as others loyal to the kingdom of God had to. The church is the trophy of God's victory over the kingdom already. The church is a little taste of what's coming. The church is a little snippet of an eventual victory that will be in full. Jesus' death on the cross was the killing blow to Satan's kingdom. He is a dead man walking. He is already a defeated foe. Every time we meet here on a Sunday, every time we fellowship around the Lord's table together, we are sounding the victory cry of a kingdom which is already victorious, the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we are simply waiting for all the citizens to gather to the king for the kingdom to commence. So in this time, we are to spread that gospel throughout the world, calling men and women out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We are the ambassadors of that future kingdom, which is already secured, already assured, because Jesus has already purchased the victory with his own blood. We, through the Spirit of God, hold evil at bay. We, through the Spirit of God, call sinners out of darkness. We, through the Spirit of God, represent the principles of the kingdom of light before the face of the children of the kingdom of darkness who operate side by side with us in this world. Up until this point, those that were loyal to the kingdom of God did not see in its fullness the kingdom of God. And of course, we, in, 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 in the spiritual fullness, have yet to see it. But spiritually speaking, we have been given the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession through the Spirit of God. We are here to pull as many people away from Satan's kingdom as possible before the inevitable day when Satan's kingdom and all who love it and follow it will be utterly destroyed. The church, if we can say it this way, are the rescue team coming from the kingdom of God to pull out all of those who will respond to God in love and mercy. And once all who will accept God by exercising their will and faith toward God do accept Him, God will finish the work He began with Israel. Now, we spoke a little bit last time about why our place in this battle matters. Whenever we as Christians assume the principles of the enemy, when we assume the principles of rebellion and lying and anger and deceit and uncleanness, things which breach the darkness of this world such as witchcraft and sorcery, when we allow these things into our homes and into our lives, do you see what we're doing? We are laying down the mantle of the kingdom of God into which we have been reborn. And we are picking up the mantle of the kingdom of Satan. We are representing the wrong kingdom to a world that is looking for every reason to stay in it. And let's take a moment to observe the effects of Satan's kingdom upon culture. I... I, I if you'll bear with me, I really want to do this. I, I've got a lot to say here. I think I mentioned last week the Humanist Manifesto. 
Humanist Manifestos 1 and 2. Humanist Manifesto 1 was written in 1933. Humanist Manifesto 2 was written in 1973, 40 years later. I want to read a little bit of this Humanist Manifesto to you. Written by a man named Raymond Bragg, signed by many people, including a man named John Dewey, who happens to be the father of modern education system in America. And we read this. The time has come for widespread recognition of the radical changes in religious beliefs throughout the modern world. The time has passed for mere revision of traditional attitudes. Science and economic change have disrupted the old beliefs. Religions the world over are under a necessity of coming to terms with the new conditions created by a vast increase in knowledge and experience. In every field of human activity, the vital movement is now in the direction of a candid and explicit humanism. In order that religion, religious humanism may be better understood, we, the undersigned, notice he calls it religious humanism. We, the undersigned, desire to make certain affirmations which we believe the facts of our contemporary life demonstrate. I'm going to skip a lot here. While this age does owe a vast debt to the traditional religions, it is nonetheless obvious that any religion that can hope to be a synthesizing and dynamic force for today must be shaped for the needs of this age. To establish such a religion is a major necessity of the present. It is a responsibility which rests upon this generation. We therefore affirm the following. This is 1933, remember. First, religious humanists regard the universal, the universe as self-existing and not created. By the way, the first thing humanists say is, there is no God. Uh, I'm, I'm going to skip several of their tenets. Fifth, humanism asserts that the nature of the universe depicted by modern science makes unacceptable any supernatural or cosmic guarantees of human value. Human value and rights do not come from their creator. They come from us. And what does that mean? That means there's no insurance for them. Ninth, in the place of, all of the old attitudes involved in worship and prayer, the humanist finds his religious emotions expressed in a heightened sense of personal life and in a cooperative effort to promote social well-being. Self. It's all about self. Twelfth, believing that religion must work increasingly for joy in living, religious humanists aim to foster a creative in man and to encourage achievements that add to the satisfaction of life. We can find joy without God. Fourteenth, the humanists are firmly convinced that existing acquisitive and profit-motivated society has shown itself to be inadequate and that a radical change in methods, controls, and motives must be instituted. Of course, calling for communism there. Humanist Manifesto 2, 1973. Something major happened between 1933 and 1973. This humanistic manifesto of all of the natural goodness of man came head-to-head -head with something called World War II. And that created a real problem for Humanist Manifesto 1. How can mankind be progressing toward perfection and peace when you just saw what the Nazis did in Buchenwald, in Auschwitz. How can we talk about peace when we're reading about what Stalin and Lenin are doing in the USSR? And so this is the, a, a somewhat of a response to that. 1973, written by Paul Kurtz and Edwin H. Wilson. The next century can be and should be a humanistic century, they write. Dramatic scientific, technological, and ever-accelerating social and political change uh, crowd our awareness. We have virtually conquered the planet, 
explored the moon, overcome the natural limits of travel and communication. We stand at the dawn of a new age, ready to move forward into space and perhaps inhabit other planets. Using technology wisely, we can control our environment, conquer poverty, markedly reduce disease, extend our lifespan, significantly modify our behavior, alter the course of human evolution and cultural development, unlock vast new powers, and provide humankind with unparalleled opportunity for achieving an abundant and meaningful life. In other words, the time has come for us to be like God. Traditional moral codes and newer irrational cults both fail to meet the pressing needs of today and tomorrow. False theologies of hope and messianic ideologies, substituting new dogmas for old, cannot cope with existing world realities. They separate rather than unite peoples. We must unite under a banner. Nimrod did that too, didn't he? Humanism can provide the purpose and inspiration that so many seek. It can give personal meaning and significance to human life. Human life, human meaning, outside of God and design. Humanism traces its roots from ancient China, classical Greek and Rome, through the Renaissance and the Enlightenment to the scientific revolution of the modern world. He's right there. But, uh, but views that merely reject theism are not equivalent to humanism. They lack commitment to the positive belief in the possibilities of human progress and to the value central to it. In other words, if you just alter religion, uh, religious ideas, theism, deism, to have a a humanistic idea, you're still acknowledging a creator, and that's a problem because man is God himself. That's what humanism is preaching. We appreciate the need to preserve the best ethical teachings in the religious traditions of humankind, many of which we share in common, but we reject those features of traditional religious morality that deny humans a full appreciation of their own potentialities and responsibilities. Does that sound a little bit like Satan in the garden? Does it? Sure does to me. Hath God said? No, 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 no. God is holding you back. God knows that the day that you eat, you will not die. You will be like God. This just said, traditional morality is holding us back from human potential. God is holding us back. This is Satan's argument in the Garden of Eden in 1973 all over again, folks. It's just just the same argument all over again. Traditional religions often offer solace to humans, but as often they inhibit humans from helping themselves or experiencing their full potentialities. Such institutions, creeds, and rituals often impede the will to serve others. Too often traditional faiths encourage dependence rather than independence. Obedience rather than affirmation. Fear rather than courage. This is the self-esteem movement. Quit this idea that you need to be obedient. Quit this idea of submission. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and be your own God. Promises of immortal salvation or fear of eternal damnation are both illusory and harmful. They distract humans from present concerns, from self-actualization, and from rectifying social injustices. We affirm the moral values, that moral values derive their source from human experience. Ethics is autonomous and situational, needing no theological or ideological sanction. Ethics are what we say they are. Morals are what we say they are. Human rights are what we say they are. Not given by a creator, which means if I have a right to self-preservation, it's only good if the government gives me that right. It's only good if somebody sanctions that right, because there's no God sanctioning it. There's no design. Reason and intelligence are the most effective instruments that humankind possess. There is no substitute. Neither faith nor passion suffices in itself. And it goes on, and it goes on. Humanist manifestos one and two. Satan's kingdom is alive and well, folks. 
I have so many notes here. And I'm going to skip them all to just park for a moment on the elephant in the room. This past week, we had another school shooting in Florida. And everybody is seeking through the school shooting to point the blame, to point the blame on this, to point the blame on that. Of course, it's always pointing it towards firearms and the, and the problem of firearms and the fact that firearms are, are, are the cause, even though the arguments are weak and disingenuous and the statistics don't bear it out. The real problem is that we are in a society that is attempting to secure liberty while at the same time rejecting morality. Liberty and morality must go hand in hand. The Enlightenment and the Renaissance tried liberty without morality. That's what France tried. And it did not work for them. What's the difference between the French Revolution and the American Revolution? One of them was liberty sans morality. One of them was liberty through morality. Liberty and morality go together. You are, are experiencing, we are experiencing a time where the school systems are teaching that we are just pieces of meat, that we are random cells, that we have no purpose, that it makes no difference, that there is no morality, that there is no right and wrong, that when people are troubled, like this young man in Florida was troubled, we simply tell him to figure it out for himself and we try to point him to humanistic methods and ideals. Anything but God, anything but the thing that can relieve his guilt, that can relieve his pain, that can relieve his shame. And then we wonder why people do these things. We are a product of the philosophy of this age. And as Satan's kingdom digs deeper and deeper into our culture, we're going to see a lot more of it, folks. Until such time as we turn to our governments to strip us from all liberties in order to ensure securities. And those governments are united and control is absolute. And if you've read the Bible, that's the end goal of Satan's kingdom. This is what we're seeing. I could talk about, uh, I want to talk about so many different things. We can connect the dots to all sorts of ideologies. Entertainment. We can connect the dots to the music industry, to the entertainment industry. Uh, um, boy, you want to talk about what they're pushing in modern movies as far as humanism, right? We can talk about feminism, specifically third wave feminism and what's going on right now in the feminist movement and how much it conforms to every point of humanistic, satanic kingdom ideology. We can talk about homosexuality and transgenderism. We can talk about the self-esteem movement. All of these things attempting to replace man's best, God's best with man's best. And it's failing. It's failing us as it has in every generation. And it will continue until either God revives the hearts of, uh, of the church to reach culture or until God brings us home. So much more to say. After grace, we come back to the tribulation period where God finishes His work with Israel. He... Also, we also see in this Satan's last attempt to destroy God's kingdom, destroy God's plan, destroy God's people of Israel. I'm going to skip a little of this here. The end times is Satan's final push, mercilessly seeking to destroy all of Israel, 
so that God cannot give them the kingdom that he's promised them. He empowers Antichrist to forge a world empire using all the capacity and influence of mankind to unite under this this one world system, this one world religious system as well, which might very well conform to the religion of humanism, will, of course, um, we don't know what what it'll exactly look like, but humanism is going to be the thrust of it because it's all the same. Satan's kingdom is Satan's kingdom. It's all the same principles, all the way back to the Garden of Eden. I hope you see the unity. I hope you see the thread. It's there. God chastens Israel to himself. They finally realize he is, that, that Jesus is Messiah. They accept their Messiah. God ushers in the millennial kingdom. The millennial kingdom comes at the heels of the tribulation. The resurrected faithful, the mortal nations live together in the created order. Satan has been bound for this time. The kingdom of Satan is bound for a thousand, of year, for a thousand years. Satan has no power. He cannot tempt man. Uh, his, his kingdom cannot tempt man, but there still will be mortals on this earth. We'll get there when we get there. There still will be people that have a sin nature. It's just there will be no curse. There will be no Satan. There will be nothing to compel that sin nature unto disobedience. But even in this paradise... This thousand years of, satan- uh, of, of Jesus' rule and satanic, um, uh, Satan being cast off, there will be many who are just itching for the day to rebel against their Creator. So at the end of this thousand years, Satan will be loosed. And Satan will begin to deceive the nations and many from all nations will follow Satan in a final rebellion against God where they will surround the city of Jerusalem, Jesus sitting on the throne and Jesus with a word of his mouth will destroy them all and will cast them into the lake of fire. Thus beginning the eternal state where our God melts the earth with a fervent heat, creates a new heaven and a new earth. Satan's kingdom is destroyed. Satan is eternally judged in the lake of fire. All those who followed Satan are judged in the lake of fire. And all those throughout history in every age who seeing the choice between the authority of God and his kingdom and the authority of Satan and his kingdom chose to love and trust the unseen God by faith. All of those who having a choice between two kingdoms exercise their will in love to God will rejoice with him for all of eternity in a perfect kingdom where every bit of his creation has exercised himself in love to their creator. And so the New Testament prophesies of this end regularly. I already told you of Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, that he took on flesh in the form of a man. At the end of this, verses 8 through 11 of Philippians 2, we read this. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, that's Jesus, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the plan. This is where we're headed, folks. The train is, on, is, is going in this direction and there's, <laughs> there's no diverting it. We're either on the train or we're off the train. So as we close today, let me just ask you, are you on the train? Are you a child of the kingdom of God? Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you recognized that you're a sinner, that you cannot get yourself to heaven, that you are born into this kingdom of Satan and that you have within you this sin nature that desires to rebel against God, but that God is reaching out to you in mercy? Have you humbled yourself before His mercy? Have you accepted the gift of salvation by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone? If you have not, would you make today the day? And if you have... Are you living for it? 
for the kingdom that is to come? Are you living the kingdom principles today? May the, the words of Paul in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, usher us into this week with a renewed vigor and determination. He says this, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth, for ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. That's what we're headed to. Let's seek those things which are above today. May God help us to do so. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.